than that. We live in a consumer society that says you can judge the value of a person, you can judge the value of a life, you can judge the value of a community by how much stuff they've got and what kind of stuff that they own. We live in a country which statistically is among the top 10 richest economies in the world. And yet, our, our, whole, our whole relationship with money feels like a combination of you know, the, the kind of arrogance of sort of, oh, look, look what I've got, look at the clothes that I wear, look at the, the, the trainers that I've gone, look at the car that I drive, look at the house that I live in. This kind of very materialistic sense of a relationship with money and with wealth. And, and on the other, the other hand, we've got this intense guilt. You know, the, some people will kind of be flashing around what they've got and others will be almost trying to hide it because they feel guilty in a world where there is poverty and where there is inequality that, that they have stuff and others don't. And when you look around, you hardly ever see a response to wealth that is to do with gratitude and that is to do with humility. You, you know, we, we've either got this kind of materialistic flash the cash thing or we've got this kind of guilt that wants to hide it so we've got a problem with our relationship with money and when I was asked to talk about money and giving I thought if we just go into the subject of practicalities we're just going to get hung up on these massive problems that we have within our culture so we're going to have to take a reasonably long run up at this so this is going to be really quick I, I had like some stuff on PowerPoint slides, decided not to show them because it would have felt like death by PowerPoint because, you know, we're going to do so much so quickly. And, you know, you, we, could, we could talk for half an hour on any of these subjects. So you're just going to have to trust me that some of the references are there and that kind of thing. So what we're going to do is we have a run through 4,000 years of history. What does the Bible say about money and wealth in about five minutes? Um, we're going to think about how do we respond to that as Christians in the 21st century and then to try and earth it a little bit I'm going to tell my story our story about that, that whole journey of relationship with God relationship with wealth that God provides relate, uh, giving all those kinds of questions and then maybe we'll think, think at the end about what's God saying to us right now as a people and as a community. So let's start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible starts. And that tells you a really important truth from day one. What it tells you is this, God owns it all, I don't own any of it. Therefore, everything that I have isn't actually mine, it's God's. Because God made it, he has given it to me through a long process of desiring to bless us, to give the good things of this earth that he's given us to steward. We don't own anything, it all belongs to God anyway. Um, Offerings are a universal human response to God. You go right back in the Old Testament, you know, 4,000 years of recorded history. Um, Cain and Abel, that whole problem started because of offerings to God, didn't it? Um, Abraham made offerings to God. Isaac and Jacob brought sacrifices to God. Um, Job made offerings to God. So godly examples of people who were way before the revelation of the Old Testament, way before Moses, way before Jesus, they all had this response to God in giving. And, you know, even people like Balaam, you know, an ungodly man who kind of somehow caught the edge of who God was because he recognized power when he saw it. Um, you know, he, he, re he responded with sacrifices and offerings and it didn't kind of really work. But there is this universal response to God, whether you know God or not. And then as you read through the Bible, um, there's bits called the wisdom literature, which are just kind of, you know, proverbs telling us how to live. Um, there's the prophets and th those things constantly highlight the, the foolishness or unrighteousness of pursuing wealth for the sake of status, for the sake of security, and the wisdom and the godliness of 
simplicity and thankfulness for sufficiency and of using any wealth that God gives you to bless the poor and to be a blessing to those around you. And, you know, there's a story of Abraham giving 10% of his wealth after God had blessed him and saved him and saved his family long before any of that stuff appeared in the law of Moses or anything else. So the wisdom of God starts to be clear on this no matter how far back you go. And then we get the law of Moses. And, you know, as a church, we can sometimes get hung up on law and think, well, here's a whole bunch of rules, here's commandments, so perhaps we have to follow them. And perhaps that's what God wants of us, you know, following commandments. And it's not intended to be like that. Jesus has paid the price so we don't have to. But um, though all those laws you see in the Old Testament, they're there as a picture. They're there to give you a glimpse, a hint of what the kingdom of God looks like, as well as many other things in their time. Um, and in the community of Israel, in the Old Testament, they had lots of laws about giving and about what you do with money. And two of the main ones were tithes and offerings. And the tithe was a very, a very simple but very radical system. And they were an agricultural society, so most of their wealth was in the form of crops. It was in the form of herds and animals and stuff. And the rule was 10% of what you get each season of growth, um, you will give back to God. That was what a tithe means. It means 10% of what you've got. Um, the purposes of the tithe, it's quite complex when you read through all the scriptures, but it basically had, it was there to support the priests and the Levites who were full, in full-time religious and civic administration. They were, they were serving God, they were leading the ministry of the temple, that kind of thing. But they couldn't be out in the fields working, so they needed support. It was there to celebrate festivals to the Lord. A big part of their life of being God's people was to go and gather at festivals. Maybe wildfires is something a bit like that. And you know, it, you, you need you've got to have food for the journey. You've got to have stuff to celebrate with when you get there. So get going to celebrate festivals as part of what you did with the 10% that you, that you assigned towards God and helping the poor in your own community. It talks about the orphan, the widow, and the alien. So in other words, children without parents, people in families without a, an income and without a means of support, refugees who've traveled into your land because there's famine in their own land or whatever. The, the tithe was intended to help them and support them. In addition to that, there was the systems of offerings. These were on top of that. And there's a whole variety of them when you start reading it. There's sin offerings, there's guilt offerings, fellowship offerings, free will offerings, first fruits offerings. And some of those are not really relevant to us. We do not make, need to make offerings to God to somehow cover up our sin and our guilt. Why not? Because Jesus has made that offering on the cross once for all, for all time. He paid the price so we don't have to. So we, we do not need this complicated system of sin offerings and guilt offerings to cover up every time we've done something wrong that's against God's way of life. But um, others of the offerings, fellowship offerings, to say, yeah, we stand together in God's people and community. Free will offerings. I just want to offer my thankfulness to God, and I want to make a material token of that. First fruits offerings. I've received the first bit in of my harvest. And in faith, rather than waiting for the rest to come in, I'm going to give out of the first of what God gives me, rather than waiting for the last and then kind of all add it up at the end. Those, those things sound like a really good idea. So there's a lot we can learn from the Old Testament system of tithes and offerings. And 
Israel tried to live some of that. They very often failed and fell down in that. It's really hard to find evidence of long epochs in their history when they really did this stuff faithfully. You know, the journey was of like sort of turning away from God and hitting problems and repenting and turning back to God and God restoring. There weren't these long periods of seeing it working really well. And then you get to Jesus. Jesus has been brought up in this culture. He knows this stuff. It's in his background. And... When you look at how many verses in the, the, the four accounts of Jesus' life, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about different subjects, depending on how you count it, money, is, money and giving is either number one or it's very close to number one. So this was one of the single biggest subjects that Jesus taught on. And Jesus made a load of points about this stuff. He made the point that we can trust God to provide. We shouldn't worry about our material needs, and we especially should not look to money as our source of security. God is our source of security and always will be, and looking to anything else for security is basically idolatry. Jesus talked about not seeking treasure on earth, but seeking treasure in heaven. In other words, what are you investing in? If you are investing in stuff that is just for the moment and you can't take it with you when you go... That is basically foolishness. If you are investing in stuff that has eternal value, investing in stuff that involves blessing people, that involves blessing others, that involves seeing the kingdom of God advance in your generation and whatever that looks like, that's, that's a banker. That's a keeper. That's treasure in heaven for all time. And, you know, we could go into a whole exposition of what exactly does that verse mean. There's some fantastic stuff in there. But I think the point's really clear. You're either investing in stuff that's just now, and it's going to be gone in a flash in terms of history, or you're investing in things that have eternal value. You have the choice. Jesus was really blunt that wealth makes it harder to enter God's kingdom. He said it's you know, harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to get through an eye of a needle. Was that a gate? Was that a metaphor? Maybe it was both. But you know, again, the point is really clear. Blessed are the poor, and it is harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of God than a really hard thing. So you know, wealth does not make it easy to come to God. It actually makes it harder in a lot of respects. He made this point that heart and attitude matter more than the amount. He looked at a whole load of rich people giving with a great flourish. Somebody almost embarrassed, an elderly widow, putting two copper coins into the temple treasury. And that was all she had to live on. That would have bought her meal for that day. She was going to go hungry till the following morning because of that act of giving that she'd given. Um, Jesus was surrounded by religious people. And a lot of them he had a real problem with. There was this group called the Pharisees. And they were really strict about the whole tithing thing. But they somehow managed to tie it up in knots in terms of rules and regulations to the point where they, they had incredibly strict rules. They used to tithe their herbs. So if you were going to put mint or dill or whatever into your, into your cooking that night, you kept apart 10% of the herbs you were going to put in your pot to give them to God. And they had all these rules, but somehow they'd managed to make the rules mean that I've satisfied God's law, I've got God out of the way, I now no longer have any obligations, and the other 90% is mine to do what I like with, thank you very much. And I can be as mean and as selfish as I want with it, and that doesn't matter, because I've ticked the box, I've fulfilled the, the letter of the law. So Jesus commended them for their tithing. She said, yeah, you absolutely should do that. 
but he was absolutely down the line with them that in making these rules that mean that you can feel that you've discharged your obligation to God and the rest of all you have in your life is now yours to do what you like with is the exact opposite of the spirit of the law and is the exact opposite of the spirit of the kingdom of God. And Jesus lived it by example. He did not have an income once he started his ministry. He'd worked as a carpenter before then, but after that he traveled around. He and his disciples had a common purse. They lived a simple standard of life. You know, several times he said to people, you know, if you come and follow me, you're not going to have this stuff. You're not even going to be sure where your head's going to lay that night. Um, His ministry was actually funded by being supported by other people. Um, the only exa- we know a number of women who supported him out of the money that they had in his ministry. Oddly enough, the Bible doesn't mention any women who's, any men who supported him. It only mentions the women. Um, I'd, I've got no reason to believe there weren't men who supported him as well. But certainly we know that women who had wealth and had money um, supported Jesus in his ministry. And, you know, they had a common purse. And we hear a bit about it. We hear about it because it went wrong, because of the whole Judas thing. But, um, you know, it met their basic needs and it enabled them to bless the poor and to bless the needy around them. And that was Jesus' lifestyle. He lived it by example. But Jesus talked about money as being a spiritual power. The Bible sometimes uses this word mammon to describe a, a, a world, a society that is driven by money and material possessions. But this thing of mammon, it almost has like a personality behind it. It's saying you are not just dealing with the laws of economics. You are not just dealing with stuff that you can represent on a spreadsheet. There is a spiritual power behind that. All of the problems we have as a society with money and with wealth, they're not just driven from laws of economics. They are driven from the fact that this is one of the great spiritual strongholds in our society that tries to keep us away from God and tries to keep us away from a blessing of a life lived God's way. Um, Sex and power, whether that's, you know, power in relational dynamics or power in terms of status are probably the other two big ones, incidentally. You know, money, sex and power, they're, they're the three big strongholds that drive, you know, the devil's approach to how human society is going to drag us away from God. But money is one of the huge ones. And Jesus clearly called it out and said, you know, this is not, you're not just dealing with practicalities. You are dealing with a spiritual power and you need to recognize it as such. And then we move on to the early church. You know, Jesus's followers, as they exploded out across the Middle East and then across to the ends of the earth, they went with a heart of radical generosity. Again, you can see what the purposes of their ministry were, because it's really clear in the New Testament letters. Um, They gave in order to support those in ministry so that the gospel could grow and spread, and especially go to people who hadn't heard it yet. Um, They gave to help other churches. You know, a lot of the churches were not amongst the rich people. Um, You know, there were churches in precarious economic circumstances. There was a time of famine in Judea for a while. They gave to support other churches that were in need around the known world. And they gave to bless the poor and to support and help the poor and needy, whether that that was in their own community or beyond. And there's, there's, you know, there's this brilliant Roman historian who sort of writes almost with embarrassment. You know, these wretched Christians, they don't only bless their own poor, they bless our our poor too. And this is like a real embarrassment to us because we should be doing this ourselves and we're not. Um, They really lived out that principle of stewardship that we saw right from the beginning. their whole attitude to money and to wealth. And interesting that they lived both out of giving from their income 
and out of giving out of the wealth that they had. Because there were wealthy people. There were people who owned lands and fields and houses. And some gave out of their wealth, their assets. Others gave out of their income. Some gave out of both. So it cut both ways. But they both saw it as stewarding what God has given them rather than owning what they had. So when you came to Jesus, it's a complete exchange. Jesus, all, of you, all, all that you have is mine and all that I have is yours. And on the one hand, that's the best deal you can possibly make. You're not gonna find a better offer than that anywhere on the internet. But it is absolute. Everything I have is now yours, Jesus. All of my wealth, all of my money, all of my income. Back to this thing, you know, God made it all, none of it's mine anyway. Um, and they really got this principle of stewarding what I have as part of my life of living for God, rather than believing that I own it and maybe I ought to give some of it. And they clearly saw that inequality in the church, the fact that there were some who were rich and some who were poor, that was seen as evidence of unspirituality and spiritual immaturity rather than just something that had to be accepted. They were not to live that way. They were not to let those divisions that were rife in their society carry across and influence their own community life. So that's probably the quickest run through of 4,000 years of teaching on money and wealth that you'll ever hear. So how does it apply to us? How does it apply to me trying to live as a Christian in the 21st century? So there's some really important points that come out of that that are not specific to a time and place. They are universal. They apply to all time and they apply to me now. Number one, everything that I have belongs to God anyway. First of all, because he made it all, that's just a fundamental whether I'm a Christian or not. But because I have given the whole of my life to Jesus in exchange the whole of his glorious risen resurrection eternal life for me, best deal you're ever going to get. But nonetheless, everything that I now have is God's. It's doubly God's. He made it and I've given it back to him. Secondly, generosity should characterize us as individuals and it should characterize us as a community of believers. When anyone looks at us, what should they see? Well, by this should all people know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. When they look at us, they should see love. And how should they see love? In every way, in relationship, in community, and yes, in, in, how, in how we live materially and in what we do with our wealth and our money and what God has given to us. Um, I don't know the exact quote, I'm sure um, Rosemary will, but um, you know, John Wesley talked about the conversion of the heart and the conversion of the pocket and them both being important, and them both being the marks of a true believer in Christ. Um, giving should be a joyful response from the heart. You know, it says um, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Um, when the Bible talks about how should you give, it doesn't start with how much you should give, or in what way should you give. It starts with, it should be from a grateful heart. It should be joyfully. It should be cheerfully. It should be generously. It should be without thought of reward. It starts with all those things. So, if Jesus has given his all to me, then how can I do anything but give my all to him? And how can that be anything but a joyful response um, to that divine exchange? So giving should be a joyful response from the heart. But yes, it will also be a spiritual discipline. It will be something that I have to work at. It will be something that I do whether I want to or not, it will be something that I sometimes do with gritted teeth through the fact that there's something within me that really doesn't want to let go, that does not want to unclench my hand and release. But I choose to do it anyway. Um, we live in a society that thinks whatever my own will, inclination, orientation or desire is, that's exactly the thing that I should do in order to be happy. But actually we know as Christians that sometimes we choose to do something out of will whether we want to do it or not. 
And that builds godly character within us. That creates the space for joy to come rather than just pursuing, pursuing every whim or desire or inclination that we have. So giving can be a spiritual discipline and sometimes we need to trust that if we do this, it will form godly character within us. I should never forget that this is a spiritual battleground. That means it is going to be contested in my life and it will not come easy. You know, the devil is like a prowling lion going round to devour. And, you know, whatever that verse means to you in what you're going through right now, it does mean that when you try and do stuff that advances the kingdom of your God in your own life and in your community, that is not going to be uncontested. There are teeth and claws out there. And some of that's going to come back at you. So don't believe that this is going to be easy necessarily. Um, you are in a spiritual battle. Um, Jesus has won the victory, but that doesn't mean you haven't still got a fight to go through sometimes. And it will be massively countercultural, especially in a consumerist economy and a consumerist society that judges so much of who we are and how we're doing in life by the amount of stuff that we have. So be prepared that people aren't going to understand you. Be prepared that your family will challenge your decisions and your way of life. Be prepared that it won't sit easy with you because whether you realise it or not, this stuff has so influenced your mind that going against that is going to feel like hard going. So that sets the background. What's it going to look like? So, okay, how do, we, how do we do this stuff practically? What might it mean to live by those principles in the 21st century? I'm going to start by talking about tithing, because you've seen that was, that was a picture right from the time of Abraham. It goes right through the people of Israel. It goes right through Jesus' lifetime, and it goes right through 2,000 years of church history. So in many ways, you can see this idea of giving 10% as a sort of a foundation or a spiritual discipline. You know, if my life is to be music played out to God, then this is the bass line. You know, this is the drum, this is the bass, this is the beat that drives it all forwards, before you get any of the beautiful melody that runs across the top of that. Um, it was exampled in the Old Testament law. It was commended by Jesus. It's been practiced by the church for thousands of years. So hopefully I don't have to make too much of a case as to why might this be a good idea. And, you know... When you look round at people you know, and I'm not talking millionaires who give out their wealth, I'm talking about normal people, almost nobody is giving to that kind of level. Therefore, it tackles the spiritual stronghold of money and finance absolutely head on. You know, this is giving the devil a punch on the nose and then not running away. This is going straight into the whole, you know, the world I live in is consumeristic, it's materialistic. I'm going to come in a completely, it sets up almost like a spiritual tent planted on the enemy's front lawn and says, I'm here and I'm living my life differently because that's what Jesus is leading me to do. So, you know, it, it's an incredible spiritual declaration. Um, people ask a lot of questions about this and, you know, let's chat afterwards over lunch, find somebody who's ever practiced this in their life and um, ask them some questions about it. Three of the key ones. Do I have to do this in order to be a Christian? Answer, no, you do not. We live under law, not under grace. There is no law or set of rules or principles that you can follow that will make you more accepted in God's sight. And there's nothing that you can do or omit to do that will make God love you less. So no, you absolutely do not have to do this. It is not a commandment that you must follow. It is a spiritual discipline that will bring you life and blessing and closeness to God and will release godly character in your life. It's all of those things. But if you find yourself doing it because you feel it's a rule you've got to follow, you're already starting in the wrong place. 
Um, people ask me practical questions. They say, do we mean net or gross before or after tax? That one comes up the whole time. But you know, if you're going to do it, the first thing you've got to do is calculate an amount. So like, you know, I get it. I get it. It comes up quite quickly. Um, in straight theological terms, I would say we are also commanded to give our taxes and pay those out of what we, what we earn, you know, to support the society we're in. So you're expected to give taxes out of what you earn and you're expected to tie that out of what you earn. On that basis, it's probably gross. But um, first of all, we have this system in this country called gift aid. That means when you give to anything that's a registered charity, which this church is, which many other Christian charities are, then the tax man gives the money back to the charity. So you can probably get away from most of the problem if you take advantage of that thing that the government does. I don't know how long they'll do it, the way sort of their approach to Christianity is going these days. Take advantage while you can. But right now, you can probably just calculate it on the basis of, yeah, the tax is going to come back anyway. Um, okay, a rather harder one and a rather more, you know, really close to the bone one. What if I do if I'm on a really low income? What if two-thirds of what I have is possibly being topped up by benefits, um, is possibly coming from, you know, it comes straight in, I get 600 quid that's my housing cost and the 600 quid goes straight out again each month. You know, I can't tithe off that because then I've only got 540 pound left to pay the rent. Sorry, I do these numbers really quickly in my head. It's just how I work. Um, but it's still a real problem, isn't it? And look, it goes back to this is not law. This is not a rule. This is not a box that you have to tick. This is a spiritual discipline in your life. And actually, if the only money you have any discretion over is the disposable bit that left's at the end of the month, start by trying tithing on that. You know, that will be an incredibly powerful declaration. Exactly as Jesus said, that woman, her two small copper coins, were all that she had to live on for the rest of that day, probably. And, you know, next day she had to start all over again out of her poverty. And yet giving out of that, which was a tiny amount, I didn't meet anybody's definition of what 10% or whatever else should have been. And it was, that was an incredibly powerful declaration. And actually, you know, making the decision to give a proportion of the stuff I do have any choice and control out of a situation of really having to watch every penny, which lots of people in our society do, then, you know, that is entirely within the spirit of this. And we'll, we'll talk in a minute about responding to the Holy Spirit rather than responding to the law. But yeah, absolutely, there are things that you can do with all integrity that really are living in the spirit of these things, regardless of what your personal financial circumstances are. But in all of those questions, watch out for that Pharisee attitude creeping back in. Um, if you're asking the question that says, do I have to do this or not? No, I don't. Great, that means I can walk away and not have to worry. You're asking the question for the wrong reason. If you're asking the question, do I tithe net or gross, so that I can kind of, yeah, I want to, I'd like to give 10%, but if I can squeeze that down to eight, wouldn't that be even better? So let's do it net. Wrong question. And Jesus, the Pharisees were, were utterly zealous on this. They did it to the last penny. And Jesus commended the principle but condemned the reality of their attitude of heart because he said you're not giving in order to as a joyful response to what God's given you you are giving in order to try and discharge your responsibility to God at minimum cost so that you can get on with the rest of the life in whatever way you see fit and that's completely the wrong attitude. So yes, ask these practical questions. If we're going to live this stuff, we need to talk about it. We need to grapple with it. We need to wrestle with it. We need to engage with it. But watch out. Just do that check. What is the reason I'm asking this question? 
Is it that I'm really trying to engage with all integrity on a really difficult issue? Or is it that that spiritual stronghold has still got its claws in me and I'm just finding ways to find a get out clause? You know, that, that vision poem that many of us know in 24-7, you know, they gave up the game of minimum integrity long ago. We have to give up the game of minimum integrity, which brings us on to giving as a joyful response. If everything I have belongs to God, 10% makes a brilliant foundation, a brilliant baseline to the music of my life, but it can hardly be a limit or a ceiling. Um, generous giving is an expression of trust and freedom. If you give to the point where it hurts and it's hard and it starts to dent your security, then you, you are making a real expression that says, my security is not in money, my security is in God in whom I trust. You're saying, money doesn't control me, my life is in submission to God, and therefore I have freedom to live God's way in my finances, not to be controlled by them. You know, if you think money, if you think you own money, the reality is that probably money owns you. And we don't give in order to get back, but there is still this verse in the Bible that says give and it will come back to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, poured into your lap. So we don't give in order to get back. We don't give in order to receive blessing, but you can't outgive God. You know, it's not as simple as a slot machine. I put money in and God gives back to me. But we live in this incredible circle of we are blessed to be a blessing and God blesses us. So we bless back and God blesses us more. Um, you know, you can't outgive God. If you give in order to try and grind yourself down and get yourself just to the poverty line because you feel somehow that's spiritual, again, you've misunderstood it. It should be I joyfully give beyond my point of security and joyfully I receive out of what gives, God gives to me. Um, it should be led by the Spirit. Um, tithing you can adopt as a spiritual discipline and you can say I'm going to do this because it's in the Bible and it's right and it's a discipline I'm just going to follow in the belief that it will form godly character in my life. True, true giving needs to be led by the Holy Spirit. Um, you can look at the need but if you try and give in response to need you will be overwhelmed. There is more need out there than you can possibly meet. There is more need out there than Bill Gates can possibly meet. So you cannot meet every need. It will completely overwhelm you. But you can be sometimes called to have the privilege of being a part of the way in which God meets that need. You can be God's hands and feet. Um, cheerful giving is a spiritual gift. It's a spiritual ministry. It stands alongside um, teaching and preaching and prophecy and healing and leadership and all those things as a gift that we expect amongst the church. Are you called to that gift, to that expression of cheerful, generous giving and stewardship. And it's a way of participating in mission and ministry. You know, for every person who is going out on, in mission, giving their life full-time or part-time to serving God, there is somebody else who is giving to make that possible. If we're a body, if we're a community, then the person who gives is just as much a part of that ministry as the person who goes out and does it. And one part will not work without the other. And there are people amongst us who have radically experienced both sides of that equation. Talk to them over lunch. Um, to whom should I give is a really good question, which brings us on to the role of the local church. Giving is not just individual, it's corporate too. And the local church that we are part of is our primary expression of our corporate faith, um, somewhere beyond our, our individual faith and spirituality. 
And local church has, or at least should have, a role in all of the major purposes of giving. It has a role in releasing people into full-time or part-time ministry to serve God. There are people in this church who do that, who couldn't do that unless others were giving so that they had enough to live. Um, it has a role in helping fellow believers amongst our own people and around the world, our Christian brothers and sisters in other countries. And the church has a role in blessing and helping the poor and needy in our own country and around the world. So all the things that the Bible says our giving is there to do are done through the local church. Therefore, local church, when it works right, is a great place to give. And whilst you won't find anywhere in the Bible that says you must give all your offerings, all your tithes, all your whatever to the local church and to nothing else, you won't find anything other than a commendation that says this is a really good place to give. So I would commend giving to the local church, even though you're not going to find I'm one of these preachers who stands up and tries to slightly turn around a scripture to say that, you know, we, we used to get taught bring your tithe into the storehouse and the storehouse means the local church. Sorry, you can't justify that from God's word. You can stand up and preach, bring your local tithe into the church because it's a fantastic way of advancing the kingdom of God in your locality, in community, breaking the individualism that money and wealth tries to sow in you. It does all of those things. So it's brilliant. Let's just leave it at that, shall we? Um, we trust worship leaders to lead in worship. We trust preachers to preach. Um, maybe we should trust people for whom stewarding wealth is their ministry gift. It's what they're really good at to steward finances and that means not having this attitude of kind of glorious independence in I give to this and I make the decisions and I control the funds maybe it's a fantastic act of submitting to one another in love that I say Pete is absolutely brilliant with money it's his career and it's more than that it's a spiritual ministry he's got as well maybe I Pete could help me with how I target my giving and how I do that intelligently and wisely and effectively I'm just saying that because he's a friend and I've asked him these questions before he's not the only person who God has disciplined in, in giving among us but you know so, some of us are rubbish with money some of us are brilliant with it and actually let's start recognizing that as a spiritual gift you get where I'm coming from and let's you know, we should all do it, and those who are especially gifted should lead. So let's trust their leadership among us. Um, yeah, you've got to confront there is a reality of spiritual, of financial wrongdoing in the church. It's happened to churches in this country, it's happened to churches in other countries. Um, I'm not surprised at that. Why? Because I said it was going to be a spiritual battle. And there, is a, there are spiritual powers at work here that desperately want to see the church mess up and be a lousy example in finance of giving. They're going to lose the war, but they are going to win some of the battles. At least that's my experience when I look around the world. So let's recognize that that can happen. That doesn't mean that we should... You know, the local church is God's plan A for how the kingdom of God in the world of finance is going to be seen in the world, and there is no plan B. So... But let's recognize we're in a battle and we're going to take some casualties. We should be sad about that. We should mourn that. We should seek restoration in that. And we should also put in place some defenses. You don't go out into battle without body armor and a, a helmet, do you? So let's put in place transparency in our local church so we really know what's happening with the money that we give. Let's put in place accountability that we trust those who can be trusted to do it. And you know, let's think about giving communally. What are we in faith for as a church community rather than just as individuals? Um, are we in faith to be able to give seriously? You know, we are one small church in a globally fairly wealthy, but by British standards, not especially wealthy community in Essex. Um, are we in faith for serious giving above and beyond our means? 
Are we in faith for mission that goes beyond our numbers and beyond what you'd expect us to be able to release? Are we in faith for buildings because we need them to do some of the stuff God's calling us to do? What are we in faith for as a community? And how do we rise up in giving in order to do those things? And how do we also rise up in faith for the bit that we're not going to be able to muster from amongst ourselves and see God release things miraculously amongst us? If we're going to do it as individuals, I've got, I'm going to do children, I'm going to do my own testimony, and then we're going to finish. But, um, so two things, children and a bit, of a, a bit of a story to finish off. Um, if we think this is important as a value amongst our community, then we should teach it to our children. Just as we teach them the stories of God's word, we teach them what it means to love one another, we teach them what it means to worship, we, we should teach them about this. And... Our society is useless at parents talking to their kids about money. Our society is useless about communicating values about money. And in fact, if you think how many adverts kids watch every day on their phone and on TV, and just think, what, how is that discipling them about what money and wealth and the things it can buy mean? They are being pummeled with the wrong message 24 hours a day. So... If we're going to stand any chance, we have to be really focused and intentional about teaching our kids what it means to have a godly approach to money and finance. Um, some things that I've learned from observing others and some things from our own life. Start really early. As soon as they have pocket money, if it's a pound, give them a stack of 10 Ps and teach them to give one of the 10 Ps to the church, to the collection, to Jesus, to somebody who needs it, to whatever it is. Because it doesn't hurt as a child. It's a fantastic picture, isn't it? God gives me enough that I can afford to give back. That's a fundamental of the kingdom. So let's teach our children that from the word go. In our family, we used to have a blessing pot. It had a picture of a hen on the side. It was called the hen pot sometimes. And um, it lived in the cupboard under the stairs. And it always had cash in it. It always had some notes and some coins. And when our kids heard about or saw a need, they could come with us to the blessed pot. We could get the money and we can do it. So they learned to be part of our life of giving really early on. Um, freak them out sometimes. I remember we went to one of the 24-7 gatherings when our girls were in their early teens, something like that. How much was it we gave you, Holly? I can't remember now. I, I think I must have... I, I don't know if this is what you're thinking of, but I think you said... I think I was about 13, you said, here's £100, give it to whoever you want. And it's like, oh, my God! Like, what 13-year-old has ever had £100? You know, it's a have, let alone to give. You know, that, that was like top-end birthday present. That was not every year by any means um you know that was really big deal and so giving them this money and saying i want you to give it it freaked them out it blew all of their fuses that you know they'd rarely had this money in their life and now they're being told it's yours and you've got to give it away freak your kids out in a really good way i mean we were planning that that was a big chunk of the giving that we were planning to give at that particular event and we chose to give it through our children they probably learned far more from that than we would have done from just giving the money separately so yeah blow their consumerist fuses sometimes by a model of radical generosity it will do them more good than you can possibly know holly reminded me of that one the other day which is why i included it um as you start to bring them into more maturity and money, they have bank accounts, they have allowances, get them a stewardship account. It's like a charity giving account so that as money comes in by direct debit, money can go out by direct debit into an account where they can then give it to any decent charity, but it has to go from there. So as you start to teach them how to handle money at scale, teach them how to handle giving at scale. Let them see what you do. Secrecy is part of the spiritual stronghold of money that we're up against. 
Um, mammon loves secrecy. The devil loves us to be secret about money. Jesus loves to shine a light on the whole thing. Let your kids see what you're doing. Let them see the decisions that you're making. Not only is it good for your own accountability, it actually teaches them a principle that is totally different to the world, which says, oh no, I couldn't possibly tell you how much I earn. I couldn't possibly tell you what I do with it, all that sort of thing. That just brings you straight back into this whole mixture of kind of flashiness and guilt that we all struggle with. So bring your children into this. And, you know, if you start thinking, I wouldn't even know where to start, that kind of shows maybe God's got a work to do in your life before you start teaching your kids. But I'm sorry, they're growing up now. Um, you haven't got time. You're just going to have to crack this one and you're going to have to crack it in real time because they're at whatever stage they're at. So actually recognizing you have to disciple your kids really gives yourself a bit of a wake-up call too. Um, I'm just going to finish on a personal testimony and story. Um, I have to be honest, I don't, I don't feel that I'm a naturally generous person. There are some people who just give away. Um, they always do it. They've never got any money. They're useless to go out to the pub with because they've just given away all their cash. But um, I don't feel that's me. Maybe it's a combination of Scottish and Yorkshire heritage. I don't know. But, um, so this has been a real journey that God has had to take me on. Um, I'd never heard of any of this stuff when I grew up in a, a fairly ordinary Methodist church. People put Tempe in the collection, that was it. Um, when I went to university, I first heard this idea of tithing, which seems so radical. I read this book, it's called Rich Christians in Aid of Hunger. Rosemary's nodding, you're from the 70s as well. Um, um, you know, one of the things it says, and you know, this was in the 70s when like, there were a lot of famine crises around the world. If, Cider makes the point, if just the Christians in just America just tithed, we could sustainably resolve the issue of global hunger and poverty in a generation. Um, how can, it's more complex now, that there's less straight need, there's a lot more corrupt regimes out there where it's hard to get the money to the right place. But the same principle still applies. God has given enough. There is no need for poverty anywhere in the world. If we just unlock, look, read the book. But... Um, <laughs> I started giving 10% of the 600 pounds a term that I had to live on. That's, I, I looked it up last night, that's 2,000 pounds, 6,000 pounds a year in today's money. I had a little book that kept it all to the nearest penny because I, I needed to make sure my 600 quid lasted till the end of term. Um, when you're earning, let's put in today's money, 2,000 pounds a term, giving 200 quid when you've got to pay your housing and that kind of thing, felt really hard, but I could live, I could do it, it laid an amazing foundation. Um, you know, I, I started work, suddenly the amount of money I had went up, but with it came mortgages, came girlfriends, came marriage, came children of girlfriend. Um, <laughs> we, um, we kept tithing on our income. We were living through the 90s in a period when the Holy Spirit was really moving in power amongst the church. Hearing God felt easy. And we started to hear the Holy Spirit, not just about our lives and about um, spiritual things, but about giving to specific projects, to specific individuals. We learned to respond in that. Actually, joyful giving is led by the Holy Spirit. If it's led by need, you'll be overwhelmed and depressed, even though meeting needs is good. If it's led by the Spirit, it will bring joy and life. Which of those needs is God going to use me as the answer to? That's a joyful question, not a, oh no, there's just too much question. 
Um, about in the year 2000, I, we were in our early 30s. We had children. We had a mortgage. I had a really good job. I had a company car. I had a pension plan. I had a career that seemed to be going places. And God really challenged us about living by faith. Are you getting too secure in the life that seems to be opening up before you? And I chose to become a contractor primarily because we felt God was calling us to work out what living by faith meant for us. When you're a church leader, when you're a missionary overseas, you have to live by faith. Those are really good examples of living by faith. But what about the 90% of us who aren't doing that? How do we live by faith? And for me, it felt like giving up the security of a clear career path and doing something that gave more flexibility to earn money and release time. Um, that has led us to times of earning a lot. I have been really well paid at some points in my career as a contractor. And during those times of earning a lot, God really had to teach us that recognizing that all of the provision, all of the blessing that God was giving us financially, it might be that God was not giving to us, he was giving through us. It might be that God was giving this wealth, not so that we could enjoy you know, an affluent lifestyle, not so that we could bank it up for the future in case the lean times came, which they surely would, but because just as he was radically blessing us, I remember getting a phone call once telling me my income was going to double because um, that's how it works in contracting times, kind of feast and famine a little bit. And actually, it was really clear that stuff that God was saying at the same time was we could see why God was giving us that money. We could see where the needs were that we were going to release that into. So, be thankful for God's provision, recognizing God might not be giving to you, he might be giving through you. Um, and be ready to respond in serious giving. And then we've had times of earning little. We've had times where, to be honest, what God's called us is to give time. To give time into ministry, to give time into trying to break into mission in the world of politics that I was in for a while. And I was doing brilliant stuff, but wasn't really being paid for much of it. Um, that teaches you humility. It teaches you that actually it's God who meets our needs, not us. It's not all by the sweat of your own brow in the kingdom of God. And it also teaches the chat. How do you live on this roller coaster when sometimes you're giving loads and then you've got to tell some of those ministries, some of those people you were giving to, look, God's calling me to something different and it doesn't involve earning very much money. Um, if giving a lot is hard, scaling back what you give is even harder because you feel guilty. You feel like you're letting people down. And you have to learn that actually it's not you who is giving. It's God who is giving through you. You have to learn it's not you who is called to meet needs. It's God who meets people's needs. And sometimes he gives you the privilege of being part of his work in that area. You have to learn that it's not you who is supposed to bless people. It's the Holy Spirit who's supposed to bless people. And sometimes you have the joy of wading in the same river of blessing. Um, and when you've been used to being the person who gives, and even if you've done that relatively discreetly, it still feels pretty good, let's be honest. Um, having to be the person who's on the receiving end, and that sudden switcheroo from one to the other, that can feel quite tough. One little story I will tell. You know, we went through a period where I'd been earning a lot. Suddenly God was calling me to put more time into ministry and to start pursuing, you know, some of that was prayer ministry into politics because it was the beginning of that period. We didn't have much money, um, not by global standards. You know, let's be honest, if you're living on benefits in a council flat in the UK, you're on, in the top 10% of richest people globally. But So I'm not saying grinding poverty, but compared to where we had been, life still felt pretty hard. We were having to watch every penny. And the dishwasher packed up. You know, they do these things. Um, 
Radical poverty is not, not having a dishwasher. But it's still flipping inconvenient when you're trying to give every hour into serving in other stuff. You've got kids, you have a house group that meets in your home, which means you're feeding a dozen people every week and you've got to wash up after them. And then you kind of think, okay, what if it's the washing machine? Do I then have to start washing clothes in the sink as well? Um, you know, and unexpectedly, out of the blue, a, a brand new dishwasher turned up on our doorstep and the guy from Abbey Domestic said, oh, we've heard you need a replacement dishwasher. And we said, well, yeah, we do, but we haven't got the money. Sorry, there must have been some kind of mistake. And they said, no, somebody's given it to you. We just, we just need to know where to install it. I mean, I don't, we still don't know who it was. Kind of must have been somebody from this community or the wider Christian community, because they're the only people who would have known. But, I mean, that so touched us. And it also taught us... You know, Paul talks about, I've known what it means to have much, and I've known what it means to have little. And learning to live on both sides of that equation of God's given me a load, he's giving it so that I can release it with open hands. God's called me to something that isn't desperately well paid, and I need to learn the humility to receive. And just having had, you know, we've never lived hardcore on either side of that line, but we've learned a bit about what it means to live on both, and that's been such a blessing. And then in the last seven years, um, I'm not into the books, we haven't got time. But yeah, there's, there's things I've learned from reading stuff through each of those. Um, in the last seven years, I could argue I've probably done less in frontline ministry than in most of the rest of the previous 20. And yet we've been able to give through that time. I've had fairly steady, sustained income. And learning the value as giving as part of, giving as part of the body while others go has been an incredible blessing too. Um, I felt... God, surely this can't be right, you know. Surely I should be out there serving. I should be going to the foreign country. I should be leading. I should... And God really had to pick me up on it and said, look, when you were doing all of those things, who was supporting you? And are you now telling me that what they were doing is less important than what you were doing? Because if it's not, then surely you can't have a problem with it suddenly being the other way around. God really had to bring me up on that. And we had to learn from that that everything we do in ministry and in mission, we do as a body. And at any given time, some are called to give and some are called to go. And whether you're on the giving side or the going side, you are just as much part of that ministry. And the fruit that comes from it is just as much as a result of what you are doing as it is for anyone else. So be content with whatever the equation. You know, one book I will show, and I've learned so much from how the Moravians, 18th century, kind of inspiration for 24-7 prayer, lived and worked. Their missional communities, about half the people worked, they worked really hard, they made money, and they gave it into supporting the community. That meant 50% of their number could be out there serving in mission and ministry at any given point, and they could all enjoy a simple lifestyle that was not lavish, but nor was it poverty. It was enough. That's an incredible challenge for us as Christian communities. Could we even conceive of the idea of half of us work and we are missionaries because we are giving into the fact that half of us go and, we, and they are also missionaries? Incredible challenge. Um, what does this mean for now? It means a lot to us prophetically. There is a cost of living crisis in this nation. We'd be foolish to deny that. We need to come against that in the opposite spirit. A spirit of radical generosity that says, I trust that God has given me enough at this time. We need to be a prophetic sign to the world. The world has no clue how to deal with this stuff. We don't know where we're going. Most of the policy ideas are rubbish or unworkable. Um, it's really hard to do. So what are we going to do? We need to be a prophetic sign to the world by how we live. 
And the first way to do that is break the spiritual stronghold of money over us as a people. And then maybe we can be assigned to the world. Um, we are called to be discreet in our giving, to get away from this kind of flash the cash mentality. So how can we be both discreet and yet visible? It's a really hard challenge, isn't it? What's God's word to us as a church at this time? And where is it going to take a release of finance and generosity to see the thing that God is calling us to be as proximity in Corringham and Stanford in 2022? Is God calling us to have buildings? Is he calling us to release people into mission and ministry in whatever field? If so, how are we going to fund and finance that? How do we rise up together in faith? And what's God saying to me as an individual? What do I need to do in my life, in my family, with my children, um, with the people who know me well and would have visibility of what's going on, how can I make a spiritual declaration in this place? Father God, that has been such a quick run through and even then I've gone over time. We are sorry, Lord, that we give too little attention to these things. We are thankful, Lord, that you have blessed us in so many ways. We humble ourselves, Lord, to saying, please teach us. Teach us how to steward what you have given us wisely. Teach us how to be radically generous Teach us how to be joyful, even when it's sacrificial. Teach us how to be a community that knows what to do with much and that knows how to handle little. And teach us how to be a prophetic sign to a world that is in such a mess in these things and desperately needs to know what the kingdom of God looks like in the area of generosity and giving and money. And let us be the people who break the teeth of the enemy and live in a radically different way and see victories in the spiritual battles that happen in this space. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Yeah, let's just give that clap. Thank you so much, Phil. Wow. We, um, we really wanted to speak about money at this time, because it's all that you hear on the news, isn't it? Bills going up, there's this narrative that is in the media and actually to, to, to drench ourselves and go deep, I mean, you, you went quick, but that was such a thorough explanation, uh, exploration of what God says. And so, you know, he said about setting up a tent in the enemy camp, even just hearing that sort of stuff helps us, shapes us, moves us. Um, you can listen back to Phil's talk. I mean, I've taken notes, but you know, it might be one you want to pause it and go down deeper. And, um, but we've got people that have spoken about uh, money to us, Steve Morris did and Roger Ellis as well. Um, I, just, I think that this is a prophetic message. I think that this is of this time that we really need to hear what God is saying for us individually, for us as a community, because we want to, what, what are the things that we want to have faith for? the faithful because at the moment there's not a message of hope is there that's been broadcast but what we've heard this morning is a message of hope I look around this this room and I think wow what could God do with people that say here I am send me here's my heart you know God looks at our heart and what he can do with that so we come with widow's might we've come with what's in our hand and God will multiply it amen